Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're running down the English heritage sites where the course of history was changed. My first choice is the Iron Bridge at Iron Bridge in Shropshire. Let's have a big shout out for poor little Pevensey Castle, mm. whose contribution is important. We discuss the historic significance of each location. And it's all stuff that we recognise, pencils and pencil sharpeners. Mm. And yet it's this really harrowing location and this really harrowing story, which might have been. And we'll explain how to find out more about them. Don't forget to join us every Thursday for new episodes via your usual podcast platform. Now, this week, we're discussing some of the key English heritage sites where the events that changed history took place. I'm here today with three of the leading experts at English Heritage, Head of Learning and Interpretation, Dr Dominique Bouchard, Head Properties Curator, Dr Jeremy Ashby, and Senior Properties Historian, Dr Stephen Brindle. Now, I think I should probably begin by explaining that you each have been asked to nominate three properties or locations out of more than 400 that English Heritage cares for before outlining how and why they were pivotal to English history. We'll then discuss each site individually in order to create our final list. So, without further ado, I'd like to ask you, Dominique, to make your first nomination, please. I'd like to nominate Kenwood, not because of something that actually happened there, but because it was the home of Lord Mansfield, who was the judge who ruled in the Somerset versus Stewart case of 1772, which declared that there was no basis in common law for slavery and was a, a fundamental part and perhaps really even the first step, a legal step in the abolition, both of the slave trade and also of slavery itself. So that's your number one. Uh, what's your second choice? My second one is the Cenotaph in Whitehall. Its construction changed the way that people across the UK and really possibly the world as well think about remembrance and war. And there's a really wonderful photographs from the Peace Day Parade, which was held on the 19th of July, 1919, which show thousands of soldiers returning from war, walking past it. And I think it was a transformational moment in terms of the country's psyche and thinking about what the war had meant, what it meant for the future. And the Cenotaph really became the embodiment of that sentiment. And as Stephen and I covered in the Cenotaph episode, we we went into great detail about that, didn't we? About this outpouring of national grief. And of course, the Cenotaph originally was um, temporary and then it became a permanent structure. It became part of the British identity. Absolutely. If there's one place which embodies collective commemoration of the dead of the two world wars, it's that monument. Mm. We don't want to have you saying too much about the centaur, though, because you've got your own three to talk about a little bit later on. Okay, Dominique, so that's two we've got covered there. And what's your third choice? 
My third one is the York Cold War bunker. It's one of our smaller sites and possibly, I'd say, our best hidden gem in the English Heritage Collection. It, although, again, nothing happened there. It's a site that was built in anticipation of national worldwide disaster. And I think, for me, it really is an emblem of what might have been a, a constant reminder of the precarious nature of what happens when technology and global affairs can mix, and also the personal stories of the people who worked there and volunteered there for many years are so compelling because these men and women were volunteered to spend their time and what potentially could be their last hours on earth reporting and serving their country rather than spending the time with their family. And, And I think that that kind of personal sacrifice and preparation to do that sort of thing is is so incredible and compelling. Mm. And it's such an unassuming side as well. It's very recent history as well, isn't it, Jeremy, I think? that Yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's something that could have happened, but didn't, thankfully. That's, that's absolutely right. And I think um, it still feels quite current, mm. um, even though, you know, we're talking perhaps a generation ago now for, for some of us. But uh, And we yeah. still have nuclear weapons. It's not like they've gone... They're still sitting in silos across the world. That's right. Yeah. It, it, for some reason, it doesn't feel completely like a period piece site. Actually, it, 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 it's got a contemporary relevance to it. Very mm. much so. And, and the good thing is that if you go and visit those sites, you, you feel very, very close to the history because it is still so recent. And there's still people walking the streets that actually can tell you what it was like to serve in such one of those places and to live with the thought of nuclear Armageddon you know, hanging over your head. You know, some of our sites are so old that it's really easy to forget that they were built by and populated Mm -hmm. by people just like us. And the Cold War bunker in York, when you go in there, it's such an immersive experience that it's really hard not to imagine yourself being one of those people and thinking about Mm -hmm. what that must have been like. And it's got a really kind of tactile sort of sense and aesthetic and it's all stuff that we recognize pencils and pencil sharpeners mm. and buttons and everything that feels like the sort of thing you know you would have used when you were a child or in school and yet it's this really harrowing location and this really harrowing story which might have been and I think that heritage itself is something which is continuously being developed and contributed to. And we have this fabulous and really important contemporary heritage that we have the opportunity to share with people. So for me, that's hopefully never happened and and what what didn't take Mm. place there. Just before we move on to Stephen, actually, Dominic, can I just ask you one question about the Cold War bunker? Um, Is this a place where the government might have given an order to fire or is it? Stephen and and Jeremy can correct me if if I go wrong here, because I'm definitely not an expert on the building. But this would have been a place where the Royal Observer Corps would have been stationed so that in the event of a nuclear attack or nuclear fallout, they would have taken readings of the radiation state outside the bunker and then fed it back via a national network to a a central office where Mm -hmm. the statistics would have been collated Mm -hmm. and collected and there would have been a a sort of a really well-developed and real-time understanding of what parts of the country were being affected by radiation, what levels of radiation they were experiencing and could plan effectively for either... Yeah, I don't know if it would be retaliation or or something else. I think probably by the time that Britain experienced some kind of nuclear attack, there probably would have been air raid sirens or various warning systems 
the people volunteering in the Royal Observer Corps would have then said goodbye to their families and headed to the bunker and stayed there for the next period of time while the world around them, while their homes outside would have, and their families probably would have perished depending on the proximity to the nuclear attack. And the bunker itself was not set up to be a place where people would live for months and months and months or years following a nuclear attack. It was only laid out with provisions for, I think, was it three months or three weeks? It's a short time, but I think that it was hermetically sealed against the uh, the radiation outside, wasn't it? It was, but in order to take the readings, they actually had to go outside and take a piece of paper from some kind of a widget outside that required them to leave the bunker and and come back in. And there was a shower that they had to take Mm. upon returning. Then it was, of course, freezing cold in order to take these readings. So each time they opened the door, it was hermetically sealed, but they did have to open it in order for the bunker to function and, and would have had to expose themselves to radiation in order to collect the data that needed to be sent into the central government. It's a springboard for a film, that is. I I, I can picture all that in my head already, that being Mm -hmm. the opening scene of Mm. a dystopian sci-fi film. But Mm. we'll try and leave that there in the past, so to speak, Mm -hmm. or in the alternate future, shall we say. Well, let's move on to, Stephen, you've got your three sites and events that you'd like to include on our list of significant historical sites. What's your first one? My first choice is the Iron Bridge at Iron Bridge in Shropshire, 70-foot clear span arched bridge constructed entirely of cast iron. The moment at which iron went from being something at the scale of a blacksmith forge for kitchen implements, horseshoes, gates, to an entire large structure spanning a major river, the first bridge, the first major structure of any kind to be made entirely of iron in world history. And the industrialised use of iron and steel is one of the leading indicators of the the advance of industrialisation. So the building of the Iron Bridge in 1778 is one of the great landmark in Britain's development as the first industrial society. And I think when we covered this on the podcast in a previous Mm. episode, the Iron Bridge episode, I was told that um, the Iron Bridge is the forerunner of all these other great pieces of architecture and engineering like the Empire State Building, the Burj Khalifa, all these other sort of iron structures. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, prior to that, a framed structure meant a framed timber structure. And the nature of timber as an organic material is such that above a certain kind, it sort of flexes and cracks and the joints can't hold. I mean, and it can burn. And it can burn. Mm. Uh, HMS Victory, which is about 2,000 tonnes displacement, is about as big as you can reasonably make a timber ship. But... I doubt if there are theoretical limits to the size you could make an iron and steel steel structure, given modern materials technology. It was a step change in our use of materials. It was a step change in the use of iron and steel, and they are the key materials of industrialisation. And Abraham Darby had a, a moment of inspiration there that instead of just providing a new toll bridge, which was certainly needed there, that he should do so in iron. He was the third generation of his family to be an ironmaster, and they were technically among the most advanced iron producers in the world. But it was Darby's idea to build an iron bridge at his own expense. It cost about £5,000. 
And we should probably point out that it's got a different paintwork colour than it used to have. Uh, we're very proud if, of this. It's not just a colour. It was a major repair undertaken yeah. by English Heritage in the last couple of years, completed and unveiled last year, and we returned it to its original rust red colour. It had yeah. previously been a sort of charcoal grey, and we think it looks much better. I think it around yeah. you know autumn time it must be beautiful when it sort of sits in the yeah. landscape like that. It's um, for the benefit of listeners who haven't seen it. The Seven at Arnbridge is in quite a steep-sided valley. The sides of the valley are quite well wooded, so the river appears in this V-shaped valley. The bridge is perfectly reflected in the river, so the semicircle of the bridge is reflected with another semicircle so it looks circular, below it. Yeah. Um, so you get the effect of a circle, but made of this a filigree outline of the ironwork. And now instead of being a charcoal grey colour, it's this quite sort of soft rust red colour, which itself changes with the light. And so it's a very beautiful thing, as well as being a historically immensely significant thing. Well, let's move on to your mm. second one, which we have covered in an episode. We have quite recently, and this is Down House in Kent, as the home for over 40 years of Charles Darwin, the place where he wrote almost all of his books, all of his books, I think, including, most famously, The Origin of Species by Natural Selection, written entirely at Down and published in 1859. And the particular significance of the house is that Darwin used his garden and the landscape around him as this kind of open-air laboratory. The observations and the experimental work which he carried out there were as important as the observations he'd carried out while the naturalist on board HMS Beagle in the 1830s. His work was integrated into that landscape and that place. Indeed, uh, Janet Burton called the second volume of her biography of him The Power of Place, the place in question being down, of course. And we call him the father of modern biology, don't we? Well, we are absolutely right to, Charles, because Darwin fundamentally reset the way in which we understand mankind's position within the natural world, within the biosphere, the way in which species evolve in response to environment and circumstances, and our own place in that. Darwin went on to publish The Descent of Man in 1873, and there again, he wrote it down. The place was the essential setting for his writings, and so it's rightly a place of pilgrimage by scientists, by Darwin enthusiasts from around the world. And it's one of those places where, as I discussed with uh, the head gardener there, that um, hmm. he spent all his life studying life, and yet after his life he's immortal. He's sort of beaten mm. sort of beaten nature in a way by his memory living on, which I think is quite a nice thing. Yes, that's a, that's a lovely idea, isn't it? Darwin himself has transcended fame, really. He's sort of become an ism, and Darwinism now underlies the way in which we understand life sciences. So I think most natural scientists would acknowledge his work. He couldn't explain everything. No scientist could. But he changed the way in which scientists ask questions and the intellectual context will do in which they understand life. Your third one is another D, and it's also yes. in Kent. It's a very different kind of one. This is Dover Castle. And mm. you could cite Dover for a variety of reasons, because there has been a settlement of some kind there for over 2,000 years. We know there was probably an Iron Age hill fort there. But I'd nominate Dover above all for the role that it played in 1940. This is crystallised in a famous photograph which we use in our interpretation there, taken from the far side of the chapel of a group of about 20 German officers standing on Cap Green A sometime in the summer of 1940. 
1940, not long after the evacuation of Dunkirk, and it's an exceptionally clear day. And on the far side of the channel, 21 miles away, you see the white cliffs of Dover, and to the left, there's like a V-shaped gap, which is the estuary of the Dow and the town, and then there's a little lump just visible on the cliff, and that's Dover Castle, which mm. is what they're looking at, because they probably knew that Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsay had his headquarters from which the Dunkirk evacuation had been coordinated underneath it. So that was the enemy gazing across the narrowest part of the channel, which they expected shortly to be crossing in Operation Sea Lion, and they were looking at Dover Castle, the place from where the Dunkirk evacuation was coordinated, because that's the place from where the defence of the southeastern coast was coordinated under Admiral Ramsay's command in a series of underground tunnels there. The tunnels had themselves been made in a previous colossal conflict during the the wars that Britain fought against revolutionary and Napoleonic France, when Dover was a particularly important harbour. And so the castle was greatly fortified. And as part of that, great underground tunnels were dug underneath it, primarily to provide underground barracks because it's, the geology is quite soft, it's chalk, so it's relatively easy to excavate. And these great tunnels were dug, and those meant that in the 20th century, in both the First World War, but more particularly in the Second World War, there was accommodation within the castle. And by the time of the Second World War, when aerial attack, aerial bombardment had become such a real danger, this really made Dover exceptionally useful. I mean, it would have been a strategically important place anyway, but the fact that there was this huge area of protected space, safe from aerial bombardment, that really sort of clinched the deal so far as Dover's significance was concerned. I mean, it's by no means certain that it would have been an area headquarters for coastal command had there not been these underground tunnels, but there were, and so that's where the actual command centre were. And they were so important that some actually during the war, another level of tunnel, which is now called Annex Level, was dug above them, which was mostly used as a military hospital. And actually subsequently to that, and this intersects with Dominique's choice, a lower level of tunnels were dug, known rather unpoetically as Dumpy Level, which was another regional centre of government in the event of nuclear war. So the southeastern equivalent, the York Cold War bunker, is also at Dover. So there's an intersection between the two choices there. Is it historically significant mm. in another way as well, because it dates back so far in history? Well, yes, Dover is a really an unusual case of a site having been continuously occupied, not just occupied, but as a, and fortified for so long. So it represents the history mm. of fortification as it evolved in the British Isles. You could say from the Iron Age, one could say with rather more confidence from the Norman Conquest in the 12th century onwards. But the reason I've picked it is the single moment of 1940 when the Dunkirk evacuation was organised and run from there and when Dover symbolised Britain's defiance of the Third Reich in the enormously difficult circumstance of 1940 after the fall of France. That's Operation Dynamo, isn't it? Yes, yep. was, the, was the evacuation, yes. Okay, thank you very much. Mm. Jeremy, from Dover Castle to, oh, another place in Kent, I think, on your list. What's your first mm. nomination for your 
most historically significant English heritage site. Okay, well, as a proud Kentishman, yeah, I've got to stay in Kent, really, to talk about St Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury. I'm actually from Rochester, so we have a bit of a rivalry thing going on. And I'm afraid <laughs> to say, in terms of historical significance, this one does knock my hometown into a bit of a cocked hat because it's talking about a very big theme, a very big process in history, the conversion of the pagan kingdoms of England to Christianity. St Augustine's actually isn't the place where it happened, but it's a place that was founded almost immediately afterwards. It's founded in AD 598, and St Augustine had come over the previous year on a mission from the Pope in Rome, Pope Gregory, to convert the pagan kingdom of Kent under its king Ethelbert, who had already gone halfway to meet them halfway and that he'd married a Christian princess who doubtless was nudging him in the ribs going, listen to this bit, it's really, really good. And Augustine famously (laughs) was quite successful and was allowed to build the first church um, and the site. And we know a lot about this church. I was brought up having to read the writings of the Venerable Bede, a monk from a later century and from the other end of the country, but he was well informed about Canterbury and he writes about it in quite a lot of detail. And archaeological excavations, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, actually revealed the remains of the Titchy church that Augustine and his followers had built, which very significantly became the place where Augustine himself was buried and where the archbishops of Canterbury were buried and where the kings and queens of Kent were buried. And It remained so. It was expanded throughout the rest of the Anglo-Saxon period as more and more of the country was converted to Christianity until the Normans came along and then decided, look, this scrappy building really won't do and raised the whole thing to the ground and built a Mm. big church thereafter. And that's quite a lot of what you'll see. It's a complicated story, but it's a fascinating one. And I still sometimes you know, feel that it's actually quite a heroic story in its way, in the the way that that it's presented. And certainly for people from Eastern England, it's a turning point. I suppose the only caveat that I would throw in is it ignores the fact that half of Britain remained Christian. The Western parts of Britain, the Celtic world Mm. of Britain, didn't need to be converted. And to accept the Venerable Bede as if it told the whole of the story is to do scant respect to people from over there so let's even the score just a little bit but St Augustine's it's telling a big and important tale you're going to jump in there Stephen just to underscore Jeremy's point Celtic Christianity was a wonderful thing and a very powerful tradition but what Augustine represented was structure and hierarchy and organization which was going to tell out and the intellectual authority which told in the long run uh, and which is really what gives Bede his authority and that's what Bede is really appealing to Mm. the authority through the popes back to St Peter uh, and that authority and structure was really what the Anglo-Saxons needed, I think, although they may not have known it. Well, it certainly weren't, yeah. it, it, it certainly, you know, had yeah. it, it, succeed, it succeeded and it, um, and it lasted and it expanded very well as the, yeah. as the, the further kingdoms um, were converted and eventually went the same way yeah. to a Roman-influenced Christianity. I think the point we can, I think we can emphasise this further, can't we, Jeremy, that what the... The the first Celtic missionaries might have done but didn't do was provide written history. But what Augustine's settlement really did was to start a tradition of literate 
clerics living in England, serving these people and starting to record history. So you can almost say it's the start of recorded history, not in these islands, absolutely, but of the English people. Is that reasonable? I'd say that's probably fair. And certainly it's a legacy. One of the ones that I might have been tempted to go for is Jarrow, where we, as English Mm. Heritage, we have a little bit of that side as being the place where the Venerable Bede himself wrote the concept of history, invented the idea of the English people and the English church, you know, very largely. And, you know, I think that's why over the centuries it's become such a powerful teaching tool because actually it deals with big concepts of this kind. Okay, well, let's move on to your other link to the Normans because obviously... You've got Pevensey on your list. Yeah, unlike my colleagues, I've given myself the luxury of going for a site because of the event of one specific day. I mean, Operation Dynamo, okay, that lasts, Mm -hmm. you know, it's an event rather than a process. So let's have a big shout out for poor little Pevensey Castle, whose contribution is important. You wouldn't get to Battle Abbey if Pevensey Castle hadn't gone the way that it went on the 28th of September, 1066, the one date in history that everyone remembers, as they used Mm. to say, and probably not true anymore, because it's the place where William and the Normans land. Now feels unlikely when you go there because you can't see the sea. You feel like quite a long way inland, but that's because the landform has changed. The Pevensey was at the head of a large bay inlet, and the Normans sailed right in, right up to Pevensey. And at that point... According to William of Poitiers, William the Conqueror's chaplain, it all went wrong because as William led the way off the boat with Duke William, William the Conqueror, he fell and cut himself and was bleeding and people were saying, okay, this is not a good start for a rebellion. But an early example of spin doctoring, his friend Earl William Fitzosborne, as he says, raised their spirits by interpreting it as a sign of success. The Duke had grasped England with both hands and had consecrated the land with his own blood. I thought you were going to say something like that, yes. Winner, eh? Blood had already been spilled on the land. That's right. And he it was had manifest it. destiny. Mm. Is he, he the already, first spin yeah. doctor? Hey, I'm, like I'm going for this. We, we, we've invented something important here. And <laughs> yes. Pevensey is where it happened. You can still, actually, when you go to Pevensey, I mean, you can still see certain things that William would have seen because... It was actually a big fort of the Romans. It's a Saxon shore fort. And it has these titanic walls of Roman masonry around the outer bailey. Mm. So you can see why William, having landed there, would go, OK, this is where we camp for the first night. And so ditches were dug that just completed the circuit and his Norman army, that's where they were before marching off pillaging around the area, marching off in the direction of Hastings and eventually, as we know, meeting the Saxon army at battle. It's the event of one day, but it's a rather crucial day that it should go the Normans' way. What does Pevensey look like at the moment? Pevensey, I mean, it actually remains important afterwards. It's a ruined site, it's a ruined castle, which dates to after this period. But I think the point that I was making that the landform has changed and that it used to be part of this bay Mm. is actually rather significant. The year after the conquest, William has to go back to Normandy to check that things are all right. And where does he sail from? He goes back to Pevensey and he sails back. And actually, for a much an early period, it was a quite big, important embarkation port. And as a consequence of that, it was actually developed by William's successors afterwards. So what you see now, quite substantially, parts of a much larger Norman and uh, early 13th century castle, but it actually, just to bring things a little bit more up to date, as, as Dominique and uh, Stephen have done, 
there's some lovely 20th century history there because actually built into the ruins, including on top of some of the Norman keep, there are very 20th century pillboxes and machine gun emplacements that were going to help defend the south coast of England against the Germans if they were going to come over um, Mm. with Operation Sea Lion. So its history wasn't over on that one particular day. That's what Mm. I wanted to uh, celebrate it for. Okay, very interesting. And then my third site is... We go further inland. We do go further inland. We go right to the centre of things in some people's reading. Not just London, but Westminster, and not just Westminster, but... Westminster Abbey and the Chapter House. And in fact, you can go right to the very centre point because it's a centrally planned building. And I'm picking this up. It's significant because actually of its ties to an institution of great importance and relevance now, the institution of English Parliament. Now, there are many historians that have argued long and uh, inconclusively about when Parliament is invented in a form that looks anything like what we have now and what a meeting of Parliament would have looked like and where it would have taken place. But one thing that we can say is that surprisingly early in the 13th century, certainly things that are called Parliaments were taking place and they were taking place in this building, the Chapter House of Westminster Abbey, which had been built between 1246 and 1255 on the orders of a very flamboyant king, King Henry III, ostensibly as a present for the Benedictine monks, of the abbey next door to the palace where he lived. But actually, we now think that his motivation was something different and actually much more tied to the idea of Parliament, that he was creating the Grand Assembly Room where he would appear in his full kingly state and, elbowing the monks aside for five minutes, speak to the nation, as it were. Mm. And Mm. it's a stunningly beautiful building, absolutely lovely to see. Much of what we see now comes to us through a wonderful restoration under the Victorians. I know the Victorians often get get a hard time for what they do with buildings, but they had recovered the chapter house of Westminster Abbey after some very difficult centuries in which some very ugly changes had happened to it and brought it back to looking like something that Henry III would have recognised. It has big stained glass windows. It has a glorious tiled floor. And many of the elements of the decoration were all about the king and his own purpose. And particularly, we know that he had made a lectern in the chapter house for himself that he would appear and speak. And we know that some of the meetings that he's speaking to are what are called parliaments. 1257, there's a parliament that takes place. The Archbishop of Messina in Sicily comes to plead for money and doesn't get any. It doesn't always work. Likewise, in 1265... There's another very difficult meeting for Henry III where his opponents basically steamroller over him and force him to accept a number of constitutional reforms. So, yeah, architecture sometimes doesn't give you everything you want. But the chapter house is a place where these things happen. And I just make one point that architecture sometimes can be important, that, you know, when we think of Parliament, we think of the House of Commons and the House of Lords where people face each other, the two parties square off, you know, across the gap in the middle. Well, that's actually an architectural choice that they did it that way and we know that that choice is based on what the furniture in a medieval church would have looked like. Well, if they'd stayed in Parliament using the chapter house, it's 
as it were, theatre in the round. And right. perhaps our parliamentary system, the way that our par- parties are formed and all that, might have been completely different. And the way that, for example, some European parliaments are set up Quite. in a completely different way. And I think the, the Bundestag is a bit like that in Berlin, isn't it? Yeah, so right? who knows? It, you know, maybe this is one of those great almost happened moments, but the Chapter House in Westminster is one of the first places where we know of this taking place in England. Okay, it's worth noting, of course, we should tell the table and tell listeners that these are all recorded history sites. They are focused on people and places that have a a record. But obviously, English heritage does look after prehistoric sites like Stonehenge, which being the jewel in the crown of all the prehistoric sites. And they do have an importance in our national story. I think for me, the sites that we're all talking about are things which have shaped people's sense of identity and who they are in, in various ways. My sites are I guess two of them are from the 20th century and one of them extremely recent and the other, I guess, still in use in a way. And I think that when we talk about bringing history to life and we talk about heritage, I think for me it's about connecting people today with people in the past and we'll each find different historical narratives and stories personally compelling Mm. for different reasons and what works or the, the things that we've all chosen or, you know, we didn't confer in advance to mm-hmm. figure out, we didn't fight over one of the sites, for example. Yeah, it's interesting that you've all taken your own personal take on what you feel is a site with historical value. And I'm sure that we all have our own personal reasons for it. I'm a classical archaeologist by training, and my research has been around the role of public art, particularly very old public art, in shaping identity in contemporary societies. And for me, our heritage landscape is something which is not just constantly evolving, but it's very present for people. These are sites and places that we walk by in our daily lives. And, you know, I went to a meeting a few weeks ago and I walked past the cenotaph and that's Mm -hmm. sort of what you do. And for me, it, it evokes this idea a little bit of the sorts of experiences, say, that the ancient Greeks would have had walking around Athens and watching mm. the Parthenon be constructed. We are building the heritage of the future around us. We are laying down our own our own interpretation. And by, by walking past these places, we are participating in their stories. And they will outlast all of us. But the marks that we make on them become part of their stories. And I think that how we mold our own collections of places is very much tied up with who we are and how we define ourselves. And so for me, you know, as an American working for English heritage, it's about establishing my own personal connection. For example, I'm doing working on a project at Dover Castle and Dover's become very meaningful for me. I don't have a family connection to Dover, but I have lots of experiences built up there. And that site has played a big role in the way that I've developed as a professional, my creative development, my intellectual development. And so it will continue to participate in my sense of of who I am and in my heritage. And I think that all of these sites that we curate at English Heritage have so many types of meanings for so many different people that we can never really attempt to tell, to make personalized or sort of bespoke narratives available to everyone. But I think that, for example, with the Cenotaph, thousands and thousands of people at the time, Mm. you know, 1919, experienced it and it played a very important part for them. And its meaning for people has changed considerably over time. And I think that that's right as well, Mm. because history and heritage have to evolve alongside us if they're also going to maintain meaning and meaning within our society. 
Mm. So your your choices are very personal along your career lines and, and personal reflections. And For me, I don't really see how they can't be personal. Yeah. It can be anything but personal because my opinion as a historian or as an archaeologist about what has shaped England is going to be underpinned by the things that I think help shape society most. And for mm. me, a lot of that is history from the ground up. That's the way that I like to tell stories. It's the sort of history that I find most compelling and I find most most interesting to myself. I don't think that's a particularly unique perspective. I think a lot of people share that. Yeah. Um, and I'm also interested in conflict, in the perceptions of conflict, and the role that icons of conflict play in mediating those discussions, especially when people disagree. And for a lot of people, the First World War is a contested subject matter. And I think that part of the history and heritage of the Cenotaph is is a doorway into that story and into that variety of perspectives. So bullet-pointed, uh, your key pivot points in history are well, the beginning of the end of slavery and the slave and the slave trade, roughly speaking. I'd say so. I think um, that, yeah, these are Through the Mansfield ruling. What could have happened to the world had there been nuclear war? I think these are things which, which shook the world. Yeah. And the ripples mm. of which have had very, very difficult, in some ways difficult to define consequences, and in other ways, very clear consequences. But mm. our society today, had any one of these things happened in some sort of alternative timeline where one of these things didn't take place or, or there was nuclear war, our world would be totally different. And I can't imagine yeah. what that would be like. So, yeah, yours, your choices are very personal, but also very worldly because it's World War I. It's a trade at the start which involves people all over the planet and potentially nuclear war, which could involve the entire planet as well. So, yeah, very interesting choices. Uh, Stephen, yours, I don't know, how would we sum up your choices? Well, mine represent a sort of a, a modernist, modern historian's view and a rather sort of wiggishly progress-oriented view of history. And it's one which I sort of only only subscribe to with, with part of my personality because I, I acknowledge a lot of what Dominique says about the value of personal responses to history. And I picked these because they relate to a rather traditional great events or rather great historical movements mm. kind of narrative and they seem to hang together. And I think there are dangers in this kind of exercise, aren't there, in saying one thing is more, implying one thing is more important than the other, if it seems to devalue other things. But for me, the, the image of the Iron Bridge, of this sort of beautiful structure in the Green Valley, there's a nice paradox in the contrast between that and the paintings by de Lutherborg showing the forges in the same valley turning the air red at night and the dramatic industrial landscape when all the trees had been felled mm. at the time that the and it looked from part like a lunar landscape yeah uh, it's so because idyllic there now, were coal it? pits yeah. and lime pits and, and the air was dirty uh, and, and the air was was thick with with black smoke mm. uh, because that was the reality of industry and there are ironies there that we now perceive this sort of silver, almost Arcadian landscape with this beautiful, slightly strange-looking object, and I think there's something very enjoyable about the gap between that and the the dirty reality of industry. It's um, important not to romanticise history in that kind of way. Enjoyable though that can be, and one of the things that English heritage we like to do is try and convey the gritty reality and the harshness of the past for ordinary people and not just see history as being great lives and great men. I think that's partly the the, the problem with, with my approach, if it, it suggests that these sort of great 
sweeping progress sort of laden narratives, it's easy to lose sight of, of the individual and what they meant for working people at the time. There's an equal amount of suffering, I think, mm. and going on in Charles Darwin in a way, because he had personal health problems, didn't he, when he was writing on the origin of species at Downhouse? And- Poor Darwin had chronically yeah. ill health for his whole adult life, yeah. probably a result of unnamed conditions picked up on the voyage, and that's one of the reasons why he didn't leave home so much, and that's one of the reasons why his work is so very much bound up with Down. So that choice is both very personal in relation to Darwin's personality, a specific man in a specific place, but then it's an instance of how one remarkable man in one place really can shift the history of the Mm. world. I'm seeing, in a way, a theme of fortitude out of your choices. I hadn't seen that, Charles, but but if you want to see that theme there, I'd be very uh, happy, thank uh, you. I I think so, because, um, you know, genuinely, because... Darwin's battle against yeah. health to create some of the greatest yeah. works ever in biology, which have yes. stood the test of time. Here we have Do- Dover Castle, this massive... National fortitude massive. of the defiance of the Third Reich Precisely. in the summer of 1940. And the Iron Bridge being Absolutely. this sort of um, stepping uh, stone Abraham to... Abraham Darby was, was certainly taking a big step. He underwrote the whole cost of the project himself. Mm. It cost twice what he expected. And he couldn't be absolutely sure that it would stand. He must have been pretty sure, I think. But no one had ever built an iron structure or anything like that big before. You know, some of the members were over 20 feet long as single castings of the date. Those were huge. And to make those into a structure spanning 70 feet across a really large river with a, which floods really violently at times, it was, it was a brave thing to do. Jeremy, um, your three mm. places, how would you perhaps summarise... Oh dear! Thematically, by, by compa- oh dear! By comparison with my friends, um, <laughs> what I've given you is the very parochial view of the old-fashioned history of kings and queens. God bless us all. <laughs> it's like being eleven. Nothing again. wrong it's, with it's, that. Well, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be an apologist for all this kind of thing. I'll explain a little bit more about when, you know, where my research interests come from. But I do feel that these punctuation marks—they have their place. They are useful. The you know, events that shape the grand narrative. But I would absolutely go along with anyone that says that in itself is not where history stops. You really got to look at everything else. And my own personal research, I love medieval castles, I love medieval abbeys. One of the things that's been a great thrill for me is to realise that beside the grand narrative, there's often a lot of really small human stories that are going on exactly the same time, but it's a different tempo of history. And in fact, it's mm. the, the wonderful contrast between those that at the time when, you know, Henry III is standing up in front of his mm. glorious wrought iron lectern and addressing the nation, you know, with the stained glass mm. light coming down on him, next to him, Benedictine monks are shuffling around living their own small lives. And sometimes we're lucky enough that we can reconstruct those lives in some detail, particularly, you know, I work a lot on castles and... One of the great discoveries, I think, of recent years is to emphasise the castle as a community of a group of people that are living there, often over some period of time, when, you know, they're not having to fire crossbows out of every arrow loop every single day. They actually have to get on and they do other things. What are they doing, you know, when when war isn't happening? Well, sometimes we know about this. And, you know, where do their wives? Are they living with them? And do they have children? We can reconstruct those communities. And often it can be quite 
surprising to realise actually how normal that whole world seems. So someone said that we shouldn't over-romanticise things and we shouldn't over-romanticise things. We should try to tell the stories with as much variety within them as possible because mm. you can guarantee that anything that humans are involved with will have contradiction and variety in them. Yeah. And I think it's our great mm. privilege that we work with this fantastic stuff and these wonderful properties to find out these stories and then tell people about them. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about any of the places discussed today or to plan a visit, just head to the English Heritage website. And to find out more about the story of Charles Darwin at Down House, you can listen to episode 34. We're back next Thursday to discover what life is like on the volunteering front line at English Heritage Sites. Until then, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share and give us a rating. Thanks for listening. See you next time.